Hi, this is Jamie Stokem, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Today, we're looking at food, so sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Alright, now step back and think about this for a second. When you start looking at comics, and I want you to think about food for a second. Yeah, I know you're going to hate me, especially if you're hours away from your nearest meal, but step back for a sec and focus on how much food you see in your average comic. Now, I'm only bet that if it happens to be kid-friendly or if it happens to be bright and cheerful type of comic, you're going to see a lot of food or a lot of food mentioned. You're going to see anything from like little snacks or cookies and milk to huge dinners. You might even see dinner and lunchtime mentioned a lot. Or, especially if we're talking, the comic is centered on really little kids, you're going to see dessert used as a means of punishment of some sort. Conversely, if you start thinking that comics happens to be a little bit darker, a little bit grittier, a little bit more, shall we say, adult-oriented, you're going to start seeing that food is either going to disappear completely, or it's going to be, well, let's just say representative of the given milieu. You know, you're going to see ramen, you're going to see porridge. In some cases, especially if we're talking horror, you're going to see vampires drinking blood. Yes, for the purpose of this conversation, blood counts as food. That's sort of a disturbing thought. Um, But think about that for a second. Even in the same story, when you basically go from really bright and cheerful over to grim and dark, you start seeing the amount of food disappear or the types of food stuff change a little bit. Think Lord of the Rings for a second. You know, you've got those cute little happy hobbits all over the place, and what are they doing? Eating food eating really great food, they're eating breads, they're eating meats, they're eating candies, they're eating all these really great visual foods that you know have to be absolutely delicious. I mean, we're talking stuff that you would see a Food Network special based around. Even when we start looking at the elves, how often do you see things like the elven bread get mentioned, for example? Or you see the dwarves. I mean, seriously, how many scenes do you see a dwarf go by an inn and they're somebody is not drinking. Seriously? Ignoring, of course, that the entire dwarven nation is possibly totally alcoholic. Um, even when you start looking at the humans, you see a lot of food, you see a lot of drinking, you see a lot of binge eating. You see the local economic status of the humans based on how much food is in the area. Generally speaking, even the poor people have a certain amount of food. We shift over to the orcs. Yeah, these people don't eat. Uh, I mean, you don't see them eating. You hear them eating on the battlefield, supposedly. I mean, you get to the point where you basically see the orcs apparently going cannibalistic, and the only reason they're going from battle to battle is because they have such horrible farms at home. Sauron might be an incredibly evil ruler, but he's definitely failed Civilization 101 when it comes to basic farming. But the basic point here is, happy hobbits, lots of food. Really not happy orcs, no food. You see a correlation there? It's just sort of interesting, and I know it's a minor thing, but food basically helps set the mood for your comic and how your comic is going to be perceived. It's a less than subtle way of saying, hey, let's take a little bit look at the world building and have a little bit of fun with what people actually eat. 
And yeah, if you start looking at manga, you see the same basic concept. Bright, cheerful people, lots of food. Really annoyed, depressed people, coffee. So, ignoring that says some interesting stuff about society in general. The basic gist here is, you can have a lot of fun with food when it comes to setting up what kind of mood is in your comic. And let's, we're going to explore that in a lot of weird ways tonight. And I do mean, in some cases, a lot of weird ways. So, exactly what are the basics of having food in your comic? It may seem trivial, but the food, amount of food you have in your comic is going to help you do a lot of really cool things. Um, we're going to purposely ignore a lot of the symbolism. For right now, we'll deal with straight world-building mechanics. You know, because there's a lot of ways where you start including food that you actually have to think about, well, where does it all come from? And we're not just talking birds and bees here. Okay, we're talking a lot of bees, not so much on the birds this time. And I want you to think about that for a second. You're basically going to be, even if you deal with something, say with small villages and all that, the amount of where the food is coming from is definitely going to be a huge part of that. On top of that, when you've got these really big, bad enemies start attacking, they're going to have to go through fields to get there. And obviously, there's going to be some interesting repercussions when all those fields are completely destroyed by the enemy invading. You know, not only are they going to be destroyed, but, well, the enemy's hopefully going to be smart enough to realize they've got all the food in the area. But the basic gist here is, no matter how big or how small a place you're dealing with is, all that food to feed all those people has to come from somewhere. I don't care if you're talking porridge. I don't care if you're talking energy. I don't care if you're talking, you know, the ultimate smorgasbord of food. All of it has to come from somewhere when it comes to feeding all those people. And the bigger the place is, the more important where the food is coming from comes to mind. So, when you start building your world up, sort of keep in mind that if you have these really big, huge cities, you're going to also have some really big, huge farms. At least in theory, unless you're trying to do something along the lines of Soylent Green or Snowpiercer. And we all know where the food from Snowpiercer comes from, right? At least I hope you know where it comes from. That's sort of a major part in the movie. But, the basic gist here is, when you start doing these really big, huge, flowing cities to go everywhere, and have like these hundreds of millions of people, don't forget to ask where the food's coming from. And it doesn't have to come from just farms. It can come from hydroponics. It can come from replicators. Yes, Star Trek is infamous for replicators, and they solve a lot of trivial problems. Not one you want to rely on. In fact, even Starfleet doesn't rely on replicators. If you start paying attention to a lot of where the damage control goes, you keep hearing hydroponics come up a lot. You know, hydroponics are, right? Floating food. So, you know, on top of that, when they start doing a lot of trading, they also tend to trade for a lot of raw food stuffs. So, yeah, they tend to rely on replicators, but that's not the only place where the food comes from. And if you watch Voyager, you know this. Yeah, I know, a little off topic, but the basic gist here is when you start dealing with large amounts of people, you're also going to be dealing with large amounts of food. That food has to come from somewhere. So when you start doing your world building, you might want to keep that in mind, especially if you're going to be doing these big, huge, self-contained spaceships 
that are going to be going from point A to point B, and they're going to be taking hundreds of thousands of years to get there. You know, those people are going to be eating at some point in that hundreds of thousands of years. And if they don't have something to eat, yeah, things are going to get a little bit nasty. Donner Party nasty, if you will. So, and this applies just as much as if you happen to be doing one of these big bad vampire novels. You know, you've got a lot of people that can't figure out why the vampires just don't take over and rule over the place. Well, if they ended up rolling over the place, you'd be seeing a major extinction level event in the local human population, and vampires sort of rely on humans to eat. Sort of a sad corollary, but it's there. Apparently vampires don't get that much substance off of animals or other vampires. And in fact, there's a lot of reasons not to eat other vampires. You know, that tend, depends on the situation. But the bottom line is, is that even when you start dealing with your, you know, big zombie apocalypse, you know, undead whatevers, you're still going to have to rely on some sort of food source. Something to keep in mind. And if you happen to be doing one of those really great comics that happens to be dealing with the military-industrial complex, the one thing that always cracks me up in these things is how little food the army gets. Or for that matter, how rarely you actually see the army actually eating. Which I know sounds sort of like a minor point, but think about this for a second. You're talking about a group of guys that have to maintain peak physical condition in order just to do their job. Or at least something close to peak physical conditioning. And if they don't, well, they're going to get grouchy, they're going to get irritable, and they're not going to be doing their job as well. And straight up, if you've got a huge number of guys running around with large weaponry, the last thing I want these people to be is irritable and grouchy. You know? And if I'm relying them on them to use those large weapons against somebody else, I definitely don't want them to be in, shall we say, less than physical condition. You know, I basically, if they have a major problem, just if they don't have the basic energy in order to get out of the barracks, how are they going to be wielding these large weapons against all the bad guys? You know, you've got these really big, huge armies, and there's no logistical supply for these things. And it cracks me up every last time. It's just straight up. You've got these people that are running around these big, huge weapons. And they're not having the energy to supply them actually doing so. You know? So, yeah, if you're basically doing this, these big, bad industrial statements about how bad the military is, you'd better remember that they actually get some decent food, and there's a reason for that food. If nothing else, it keeps them focused on the bad guy and allows them to have enough energy to go after the bad guy. However, it happened to be defining the bad guy relative to your comic. Just keep in mind when you're world building, the food needs to come from somewhere. And while you're doing that, keep in mind that people also have to eat. And people are going to have some really great times when they sit down to do so. To the point that when you're, again, when you're doing the world building, you need to allow time people to act, time to actually eat food. And that's going to set up some interesting little rituals within the comic itself. Uh, obviously, if you're doing a Hobbit-based comic, like 90% of the action will be people just eating. 
But, you know, establishing meal times, like, you know, when breakfast is, when lunch is, when dinner is, uh, what time they eat desserts even, can be a major little advantage in setting up your world. Because once you've set up those rituals, those little rituals actually help in back up to how real your universe is. Yeah, yeah, I know, little touches and all that, but it's the little touches that make the difference, you know what I mean? And since food is such a major part of our lives, it might as well be part of the comic book characters' lives as well. And keep in mind, this means that you will have certain mandatory food scenes. If you happen to be doing a lot of, shall we say, a little bit more primitive worlds, like, say, medieval technology, yeah, all of a sudden you're sowing this food and reefing that food is going to be a major thing that's going to have to happen every so often. You're going to need to establish when these people actually go out, plant their food, you know, what I mean? or when they happen to start raising it, uh, depending if we're talking plants or animals. And you're also going to have to show them actually harvesting this. Obviously, if it's meat, it can happen pretty much any time. But if we're talking plants and we're talking those big, huge fields of wheat, well... Those things don't exactly sow themselves, and they definitely don't harvest themselves. It's going to be important for you to show those scenes every so often. Again, it's going to be something that's going to establish a major part of your reality in there. On the flip side, if you happen to want to establish your world happens to be a little bit more grim or a little bit more darker, then yeah, go ahead and show everybody starving. But the thing is, you're still basically showing on some level... Where the you know how much food it happens to be in that universe? Do you happen to show really cool fields of wheat? Then you've established there's a lot of food in that universe. And I don't care if we're talking about you're defining the universe as an actual oh my gosh Starfleet went crazy type universe, all the way down to maybe a couple of square miles. A universe happens to be just wherever we happen to center our attention upon. So keep that in mind when you start looking at you know, establishing harvest and sowing times for your food products. And if you happen to be sending this to the food factory, well, yeah, that's going to be something you're going to need to deal with as well. I mean, at the very least, restocking. Of course, if you happen to be doing city life, keep in mind that you're going to be establishing this through all your great food stalls you happen to see all over the place. You go to the mall, food court, you know, Plus, there's always uh, board meetings happening in restaurants. And let's not forget the great D&D, oh my gosh, we meet in a bar. I mean, seriously. The Tinder apps in those universes have got to be amazing. But, the bottom line is, is that when it comes to the gathering and hunting and tracking down of food, it's going to be a major part of these people's lives. And it'd be nice to show that every so often, even if you happen to have a teenage boy who happens to be going after the refrigerator every so often. You're establishing that these people actually do eat. Of course, it also means that you're establishing they do other things as well, but let's just say indoor plumbing tends to hide a lot of problems. So, make sure if you have no nothing else represented in terms of real-life processes in your comic... Make sure that you have people eating. It's going to be a really great way to set things up. On top of that, keep in mind that we do have a lot of food-centric celebrations. Obviously, if we're looking at... I'm going to go American here just because it's a lot easier for me to relate to. But keep in mind, I'm willing to bet there are a lot of similar celebrations throughout the world. Um, Christmas, for example. We have these big, huge family get-togethers. We have nothing but food. 
Thanksgiving, everybody gives thanks, lots of food. In the summer, family reunions, celebrations of all sorts of types, you know, from graduations to people moving on in various ways. You have food. Funerals, giving casserole dishes out to the bereaved is definitely a part of the process. So, anytime you have any kind of celebration going on, odds are it's going to involve food on some level. So have a lot of fun with it. The various foods you have will help set up what kind of world you're dealing with. And if you happen to be doing a horror movie, don't forget that you're also going to have uh, definitely people going after food, tracking it down, and possibly playing with it. Yes, we're talking about vampires, we're talking about werewolves, we're talking about pretty much anybody that subsists off human flesh. Yeah, a little gross, a little nasty, but you got to keep in mind that, again, we're looking at the perversion of human life. And if we've established that food's a major part of human life, then obviously if we're talking the perversion thereof, that's going to be a major factor in these monsters' lives as well. Even if it is to simply show how different they are than regular humanity. You're just not going to see a whole lot of people, or in this case entities, that are going to be avoiding food altogether. Even if that food happens to be living off the very suffering of others. You know, you've still got some sort of food stuff going off there. So, whenever you start introducing monsters and other critters, you might want to think about what they're eating. Or more accurately, who they're eating. Just think about it. Okay, so obviously those of us have a a little bit more world-building type bend to us. The concept of where the food is coming from is going to be sort of an interesting question. You know, we're obviously going to be sitting across, you know, sitting fields aside for nothing but food, or if we're doing more spaceships, we'll be setting up decks. You know, hydroponics is is probably the best way to get food raw food into the stomachs of other people that we're working with. So, um, it's just straight up, when you start looking at all the world building, you're going to be starting not looking at how people eat and where that comes from and it's going to be an interesting concept, especially when you start looking at the logistics of it. You know, like how does that food get from the farm to the plate? And we're not just talking in a total organic style here. You know, what kind of ships are used? What kind of spaceships are used? What kind of transportation, bottom line, is used to get that food from point A to point B? You know? But this also means that we can actually use these foods to show how entirely different... Our world is from the real world. You know, we don't have to have apples and figs, for example, or even oranges. We can come up with our own neat little food. Uh, Just whatever you do, please avoid the Avatar name convention. Arguably one of the worst parts of that cartoon had to deal with the fact that everything was a hybrid of something. Straight up. It just hit a point where I did not want to see another strawberry banana or an apple fig. You know? Don't get too cutesy with the way you name your fruit. It has to be simple. It has to be just something that people are going to remember. It's got to be something that not necessarily rolls off the tongue, but is going to be something people are going to be using a lot. It's just straight up. You're going to be seeing food used not only for directly eating, but you're also going to be using it for metaphor. 
Just think of how many food-based metaphors we have on our language, and then you're going to realize that you're going to be seeing this in a lot of other languages as well. You know? Uh, apples in barrels, fish in barrels, yeah, pretty much anything in a barrel. Alone. There's just a lot of really weird food analogies out there, there, and you're going to be seeing a lot of these in any language that has any kind of intelligent people. So when you start naming your stuff, don't get too cutesy. You know, don't get, don't go Avatar. Just have some fun with it. If you have to pick words from a different language, go for it. You know, nobody's preventing you. But the key here is name them something and keep those names consistent. And don't forget, this is another way you can have some fun with the with the universe you happen to be building. I mean, straight up, we've all looked at things like Chopped or Master Chef or Top Chef or pretty much any of the Food Network or you know, pretty much any of the shows that you happen to deal with food are sort of enjoyable because you happen to see all the weirdness people happen to pull off in those things. And that's actually, that's not just part of the fun. We Not because we like seeing people being creative, but we like to get ideas on what we're going to be eating later. And you as a writer need to have the same amount of fun. I mean, yeah, your artist is going to hate you for it eventually, but, you know, you've got to have a little bit of fun when it comes to having describing the food stuffs. Yeah, and just go crazy with it. You know, if you want to have a cake that happens to have feathers all over it, go for it. Yeah, the artist is going to hate you for it. Trust me on this. But you want that cake with feathers on it? Go for it. You know? If you happen to want to do meatballs that explode. Sort of a cool idea. Especially if you happen to be dealing with certain races. But, you know, when you start coming up with the various foods, don't keep in mind, you need to keep in mind just the raw food stuffs like the fruit, the vegetables, the grains, the nuts, legumes, that sort of thing. You need to think about the finished product as well. I mean, let's get real. We start seeing these big, huge, sumptuous feasts we happen to like a little bit of weirdness to it. Like Traducan. What is the alien version of Traducan? And don't think about it too much. Trust me. You don't want to think about it too much. So, just when you start having your foods, keep in mind you have to name them something that's going to be catchy, it's going to be working, it's going to be memorable, or at least not too crazy. And you're also going to have to be thinking of finished products. Because not everybody goes around eating apples. Some of us do like our little pastries. And meat pies. You know? You get the idea? Have some fun with your foods. At the same time, there are going to be some interesting issues that may crop up. I've already mentioned a naming convention. Like I said, don't go Avatar. Have some fun with it. But, don't get too crazy. First off, you don't want to get too far outside the realm of normalcy unless, of course, the entire point is to show how weird this place is. You know, if you're going to be doing a meal among the very elite, you're going to be definitely wanting to show what kind of foods these people eat. And some of those foods, even in our life, tends to get really, really weird, you know? Think about caviar, for example. Yeah, fish eggs. You think they'd be simple? But you've got caviar tends to go for quite a bit. Consider saffron. It's a basic spice in a lot of places, but in the States, you're talking well over $100 an ounce. You know? 
just so have some fun with it, but don't go crazy. And I'm pointing this out because when it comes to food, artists like it nice and simple. It's not they don't want to have to redraw the same birthday cake with lots and lots of feathers all over the place. It's going to be aggravating. It's going to tick them off. And yeah, you can argue that, well, we don't have to worry about a budget for special effects and other weirdness. The artist is going to go, screw you, if you get too crazy. So have fun, but don't have too much fun. Also, keep in mind that whatever food you're going to show is going to show, you know, basically what's going on in the world. If you want to show a really poor family, bring in the porridge. Actually, you're going to be seeing porridge used in a lot of weirdness. Not only does it show poorness, but it can also be used to show a fascist type of situation. I mean, think about this. If you happen to have a cybernetic, you know, if you have an army of cyborgs, you're going to find out real quick that porridge is the most effective way of making sure that these cyborgs get something to eat. So... You know, you're going to have a lot of times when they're just going to be getting these big, huge tubes of, well, porridge. Yeah, it may not be porridge. It may, I mean, obviously, it's not always going to be some sort of grain-based food. Sometimes it's going to be a lot nastier than that. And this is where you get to have a lot of fun. I mean, think about this for a second. When you're trying to establish that everybody is faceless, vague, not really standing out in the crowd. You need something that's basically going to be faceless, vague, and is going to disappear in a crowd. And nothing describes Porridge better than that. On top of that, Porridge allows you as a writer to get a little bit gross. And more importantly, it allows you to be totally creative without ticking off the artist. I mean, straight up. At the absolute worst, it's a tube of nameless gray paste. You know, when it comes to an artist, you can all of a sudden do a lot of tubes of gray paste. Hey, this is actually sort of nice and easy. However, it's really great for showing off just how incredibly boring everybody is relative to each other. The reason I'm saying it's great for a fascist regime. After all, with a fascist regime, you basically have the people giving orders and the other 99.99% of the group that is taking them. And as far as the people on top are concerned, those other people are that 99.99% of the crowd is exactly the same as everybody else in there. They're equally expendable, and who cares? Forcing your armies to eat porridge is a great metaphorical point, especially if you're trying to establish who's in charge and, well, who's not. And if you happen to have a situation like uh, the aforementioned army of cyborgs, Hey, you've got some really great stuff. You can actually, some really great metaphors there. And here's the really fun part. You don't have to describe what the porridge looks like, but you get to describe what's actually in it. And this gives you the opportunity to be as gross and disgusting as you'd absolutely want to be. Like I said, it doesn't have to be something that's uh, a grain-based type of food. That must be very boiled. It can be squished, it can be crushed, it can be formerly sentient. Yeah, you got that. It can be meat-based. 
And nobody really knows what's in porridge. It's worse than mystery meat. Because mystery meat, you can at least break it down to a few possibilities. Porridge? Yeah, it can get really gross really quick. So, it allows you to have a lot of fun, get a lot of grossness out of your system, and your artist isn't going to be killing you for it. you got to love those kind of win-win situations. And if you think porridge is nice and generic, well... Consider if you happen to going back to a big army of robots, because our robots have to eat too. The only difference here is they have to eat, well, electricity. They need something to power them. And while it may sound really great to have everybody on their own individual nuclear power packs, the reality is that at some point in time, the vast majority of robot armies need to recharge at some point. If you happen to have cyborgs, yeah, they're going to have to recharge their electronics parts too. And while they obviously are going to require a little bit of oil, oil is its own logistics element, but, you know, worth considering nonetheless. Well, let's just say everybody likes dealing with electricity. It's bright. It's brilliant. It looks like lightning bolts. Yeah, that's probably another reason your artist is probably not really happy with you. But you also have to think about, even more importantly than with regular foods, Where's all this electricity coming from? And obviously it's not going to be coming from humans. Yeah, that's arguably the worst plot point of the Matrix and it's been gone over. So I'm going to leave it alone. You simply say, yeah, it's this is one time when the food stuff is not humans. You've got to be asking yourself where all that electricity is coming from. Nuclear power plants, solar power, wind-powered robots. Think about it. But the bottom line is, is that somewhere along the line, you've got to have some sort of major source of all this electricity. And this is going to actually help your stories a little bit, especially if you happen to be dealing with people that are out to kill robots. You know? If your society happens to be robot-based, don't worry about it too much. Just treat it as you would anybody, you know, different flavors of electricity, that sort of thing, and just have fun with it. Treat it as sort of a digital porridge, if you will. But, if you happen to have people that are trying to take down the robot civilization, yeah, all of a sudden, where all this energy is coming from is all of a sudden a major, important detail. So, have some fun with it. Yeah, if you happen to be a nuclear power plant, yeah, that's just bonus. I mean, not only do you take out the uh, robots at the source, but you also... Well, yeah, you're going to be taking them out big time as well. And you get that really nice explosion in the background. So, sorry artist. But, the bottom line here is, have some fun with the electricity, but keep in mind something else here. Or more accurately, two other things. First off, what happens if the wiring happens to be damaged? I mean, if all of a sudden the robot all of a sudden can't plug in... You know, is there going to be some sort of... How long is the robot basically going to last without being able to charge? Can the plug be fixed? Can it be bypassed? Neat little details, and it's something you're going to have to work out a little bit ahead of time. Some cases, you're just going to simply want that if you fry the, the electricity. Hey, you've uh, basically damaged that system, period. If you're lucky, you've also got a limited duration of how much energy is left which makes a situation where you're looking for have a situation where you want to have a countdown clock. Hey, if your energy source just went down from 
say 20 years to 30 minutes, you got a really nifty little countdown clock, especially if you're going to explode when it goes by. There's also the question, of course, about EMPs, the electromagnetic pulse. And keep in mind that there are a lot of post-apocalyptic scenarios that are based on the concept of, well, big nuclear war going off, and the thing that, nukes are, that basically does all of the damage is that really nifty electromagnetic pulse. If you happen to be dealing with robots, the question becomes, just how badly screwed are those robots going to be? And to some, what degree is that EMP going to be dealing with all the electrical wiring and the power grids? Minor details, sure, but something you definitely need to think about when you're setting things up. Oh, and just because, yes, you could conceivably get electricity from humans. You just basically have to put them in some sort of turbine. You know, um, if you happen to have a huge number of humans and you want them to provide a huge amount of energy, hey, time for those bikes and it's time for treadmills. Yeah. You can get just feed those humans, and let's get real. You can feed them all the porridge you want. And the neat thing about porridge is that it's sort of, well, I'm not going to get too gross here, but I will point out that porridge is a great way to teach the circle of life. Human dies, human eats porridge, and we're not going to tell you what's in the porridge. So, anyway. And on top of that, we're going to be dealing with vampires. The vampires are sort of weird, but it's an interesting thing we sort of need to deal with because of the whole food issue. Nothing emphasizes horror like having your vampire feed off the local humans. I don't care if they happen to be your boring energy vampires or emotional vampires that are just simply there, or they can touch people and take off you know, years out of their lives, or if they're actually going after the actual blood. You know, the bottom line here is that you can use what the vampire is feeding on to emphasize the horror level of the comic. In fact, that's usually what they're used for. If your vampire happens to be a little bit older and he likes, uh, he's a little bit more, shall we say, cannibalistic, hey, so be it. The bottom line here is that if you need to remember three things about when it comes to a vampire in blood, it's important to show the effect of the feeding. That is, even if the person isn't completely desiccated by the elimination of blood in their system, you're going to have to want to show some of that effects of that feeding. You know, they're going to be a little bit paler, they're going to be a little bit less energetic, so on and so forth. You're going to want to show the effects of the actual feeding. And if they happen to, well, kill a person by feeding on them too much, hey, you're going to be wanting to show those effects as well. You know, we're not just talking a little bit of a little, person's going to be a little bit paler. In some cases, we're talking actual desiccation. That is, the person is going to be looking like a mummy, and not in a good way. So, on top of that, there's also the question of what happens if a vampire doesn't feed. Some vampires tend to get a little bit grouchy, a little bit more easily aggravated, and given the kind of power that a vampire wields, that may not be a bad, good thing. I mean, it might be a Good thing if you're trying to basically show that vampires are bad people and they seem to do bad things just to strike out. But for the vampires themselves, yeah, running out of blood is going to be a bad thing. You're going to need to show that. Some vampires tend to get older without that food. And they get visibly older. They get crinkly. They get 
hair in all sorts of weird places. They lose stature. You know, they require more and more clothing to hide themselves. It's just, you, there's definitely going to be a difference between Count Dracula fully fed and Count Dracula, you know, seven days without people. You're going to have to keep those differences in mind when you actually start talking to your artist. So, I'll leave that conversation to you people. Just keep in mind that you, the effects will definitely be there. And of course, keep in mind that there are going to be some psychological issues that need to be dealt with as well. Specifically, the whole predator-prey situation where the prey usually tends to think that it's better than it's... What it's or sorry, you're going to have the predator thinking it's better than the prey. And of course, this is going to create all sorts of arrogance, situations where they're a little bit more overconfident in situations and where they're going to ignore the capabilities of the predator or the prey that they're worried about. Or in this case, not so worried about. You see it all the time. You see the big, bad, immortal vampire not really worried about, you know, the itty-bitty mortal. And then the mortal kicks the uh, ever-loving immortal's butt. So you're going to have to deal with some definite psychological issues, even if it happens to be situations where you've got vampires hanging around, you know, regular people. You know, is a vampire trying to hide themselves? How badly are they pulling it off? Because let's get real, it's... When everybody around you can eat hamburgers and you can't, it's going to be pretty obvious that something's up. So even if the vampire finds himself in a situation where they have to hide, and being forced to deal with a humiliating situation like that is definitely going to take the toll on that vampire. You know, you're going to have to allow that there is going to be some interesting psychology going around when you're dealing with predator-prey relationships. Just something to keep in mind. Alright, so, I know you're basically thinking that at this point we've basically nothing about worried about, nothing but world building, and I know your artist is pretty much going, you want me to draw what? But, keep in mind there are some actual really neat things you can do with food above and beyond having a really big feathery cake. And no, I have no idea where that image came from, well, yeah I do. But, the key here is, there's going to be some really nice things that you can do with your food. And I'm not talking about just because you have something really cool in there and you've established that you actually have some sort of reality going on. Yeah, we're talking about the actual hardcore writing stuff. First off, different foods establish not only what kind of universe you're building, but also the kind of mood in that universe, obviously. That's pretty much a basic here. If you want to establish something that's light and fluffy, you're going to have lots of really great desserts. You know, Pop-Tarts, Pocky, pop Popcorn, pretty much any other food that started with P. Um, well, except for one, and we'll get to that in a, another time in just a sec. But when you're doing this bright and cheerful, kid-based universe, you're going to have all these really bright, flavorful foods all over the place. If, on the other hand, you're trying to establish that it is a grim, dark, oh my gosh, everybody's suicidal type universe... What's that other P word? Oh yeah, porridge. So, or ramen. Heck, let's go for a different letter of the alphabet. You know, the bottom line here is, is that you're going to have, your foods are definitely going to help establish the kind of universe you're dealing with. So keep that in mind. Also, you can do what's called a really neat thing, called an emotional callback using your food. And we're looking at ratatouille as the classic example. 
but it happens a lot in, in manga as well, where basically you show, you know, this character really likes his food as a kid, and then you show how that person sees that food as an adult. And, of course, if the person has, shall we say, a transformative change, that in, cha- enables them to, well, eat a different type of food. Well, showing how they view those foods is going to be an interesting way of demonstrating how alien they are to that nature. Yeah, we just went weird on you. But think about this for a sec. If you're basically dealing with this guy who went total cyborg and he's, and he's all of a sudden having to deal with electricity, how's that going to affect how he relates to the foods of his youth, you know? If he really liked, for example, black licorice, yes, some of us actually do like it. And all of a sudden, he's not able to eat those kind of foods, or if he's a vampire and he's strictly on a blood-only diet, how's he going to react when he starts trying to eat those foods, you know? It's also going to be able to show, like you said, how alien he is to his former nature. Because obviously, he's going to be... Well, he's not going to be able to eat the foods he got as a kid and you have to show that emotional loss on some level even if it happens to be the loss of emotions itself so the food itself can be used to highlight just how much the character has won or how much he's lost on the so called more positive side of the ledger keep in mind that foods can be used to set a romantic mood I mean straight up do you want to get a thing going on between these two characters give them some bread some wine some cheese and a local park. Nothing beats a picnic when it comes to romance. Or a home-cooked meal. For that matter, if you're trying to be established that these two these characters are more of a family, a huge home-cooked meal, even if it's a you know communal pot of ramen, will establish that this is a family's group. So, your food all of a sudden can not only be used to show how much you've lost, but also how much you've gained and also how much you have. Yeah, food is an emotional currency. Go figure. But, also keep in mind that you can also do some interesting things with foods that are, shall we say, if you want to show that you have two characters that are in a definite rivalry situation, hey, nothing beats a good old-fashioned cooking contest. Or if you're trying to show how innovative a person is, you know, show them show them at a some sort of dessert contest. Yeah, I know you, your artist is looking at me and glaring, but when it comes down to it, you can do a lot of stuff with food, and it's not necessarily and if you a violent. I mean, yeah, you can do a pie fight. And nothing beats a good old fashioned pie fight. Trust me on this. But if you're trying to basically get away from a, shall we say, more violent confrontation, and you want to leave the Mecca at home, hey, you, everybody has a kitchen. So you can always have some sort of competition involving food. Unless, of course, you happen to be dealing with just porridge. But, you know, different worlds, different me- medium. So, just think that. Just think about all the weird stuff you can get with food. Summing up, Food is something you're going to have to definitely think about when you're setting up the world. You're going to have to set up how people get it, where it comes from, and all the various logistics nightmares that make food up. But when it comes down to it, food is a great way for establishing the kind of mood as well as what kind of emotions you've got going around in a particular group. I mean, straight up, nothing beats a good old-fashioned home-cooked meal for demonstrating family.
And a surplus or a lack of food helps to establish a lot of really great elements about your story right off the bat. So definitely figure out ways to include food into your comic. Other than that, if you happen to love the podcast, please support us over at patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. You're going to be finding a lot of really great mini podcasts, some videos, and possibly even some show notes. Basically, a really a number of really great little extras to help you really like the show a little bit more, as well as help your writing career, as well as help you get over some of those more interesting emotional humps. Yes, we tend to talk about stuff like, you know, where stories come from, imposter syndrome, you know, all the stuff that basically makes writing really hard. And how you can help deal with those situations. So definitely check us out over at patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. And I hope to see you there. Other than that, you know, have some fun with what stuff you put in your comic. Have some fun. We'll talk to you later and have a good night.